This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing all right. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Vahini Vara, author of a new story collection entitled, This is Salvaged. But I do feel that it's important to me to sort of honor and appreciate the, the lives that we do have and the world that we're in and the experiences past and present that we've been given. And I think I bring that up in part because I think that's a kind of worldview that is present in the collection. The idea that like there there's grief and there's suffering and yet like here we are and how lucky is that? You know, I, I certainly that that is certainly something that my sister imparted. All right, that was Vauhini Vara. Her new story collection is called This Is Salvaged, available from WW Norton and Company. This is Salvaged is a wide-ranging collection of stories that are concerned at their core with relationships, human relationships, human relationships of all kinds. Friend, neighbor, child, parent, sibling, the relationship between self and others. Many of the stories involve grief and loss. There are stories about uh, dislocation, creation, estrangement, self-destruction, illness, transcendence, you name it. It covers a lot of ground. This is a very wise and searching story collection by Vauhini Vara. Our conversation is coming up momentarily. A quick reminder before we get started that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show and I share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to get an email from me on a weekly basis, you can go sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Likewise, I would love it if you would join the Other People Patreon community, help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, a coffee mug, a tote bag. You can get a book club subscription, all sorts of fun stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Abrams Books, publisher of Idlewild, the darkly funny debut novel by James Frankie Thomas. Idlewild is set at a Quaker high school in lower Manhattan. This is a campus novel. It is a book about complicated relationships, and it takes a very fresh angle on queer and trans identity. Idlewild is the official September pick 
of the Other People Book Club. I'm reading it right now. It is superb. It nails the heartbreak of being a theater kid and the humiliation of growing up. That is Idlewild by James Frankie Thomas, available now wherever books are sold from Abrams Books. Okay, so my guest, again, is Vahini Vara. Her new story collection is called This Is Salvaged. It is available from W.W. Norton & Company. Vahini Vara's debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, was published back in 2022. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It was also shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize and the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. It won the Colorado Book Award. In addition to her fiction work, she is also a journalist and an editor. She started out as a technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal and then went on to launch and edit and write for the business section of the New Yorker's website. Over the course of her career, she has written for a variety of publications, including the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Harper's. She is now a Wired contributing writer and on occasion works as a story editor at the New York Times Magazine. She is currently a visiting assistant professor of English at Colorado State University. So a total slacker has done nothing with her life and we're all very concerned. Let's, uh, let's get to it, shall we? I had a great time talking to Bahini Vara and I'm excited to share the conversation with all of you right now. So here we go. This is Vahini Vara, and her new story collection, One More Time, is called This Is Salvaged. I feel like there are three possibilities. It's you either set out to write about certain things and then write about them, or discover that you're writing about some certain things somewhere in the writing process, or the third option, which is that the book comes out and people start to review it and talk about it and notice things about it that had never occurred to you, which is happening already for me with this book. Um, but the one that the, 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 the theme thematic aspect that you asked about having to do with the sort of like the border between self and outside self and non-self, I guess, um, is something that explicitly was of interest to me. I can't say that it was of interest to me when I sat down and started to write each story, but I tend to revise stories for a really long time in general. And in the revision process of a lot of these stories individually, and then certainly of the stories as I started to conceive of them as part of this particular collection, that was something that was very front of mind for me. Like it felt to me like a big part of what the collection was about. Okay. And so another thing that I noticed, and I think this is sort of tied to this issue of boundaries, you know, between you as a self and the outside world or between a character as a self and the outside world has to do with body horror or like grossness. (laughs) Like there's a lot of smells and there's a lot of like kind of the gross parts what most people would consider to be the gross parts of being a human. So like dead skin, um, feces, mucus like there's a lot of that stuff happening in this collection yeah there is and that's the part i have to admit to you brad and i know this is going to sound like sort of unbelievable or ridiculous but that's the part that hadn't occurred to me (laughs) 
as I was writing. I mean, which isn't to say, obviously, I knew, like, there's a story that centers on vomit. There's talk of all kinds of bodily things. But it hadn't occurred to me that this was like a major aspect of the collection. And in the two full-length reviews that have been written of the book so far, like that is a major focus of them, um, the major focus of one of them. And when I read that first review, which was written by Hannah Rivers in High Country News, I was like, huh, she really like she noticed something minor in my collection. And then the second review came out today in the Boston Globe that that talks in some detail about that. And then I started to be like, oh, maybe it's me. Maybe it's not them. And now you're asking about it as well. And so um, so clearly this is something that um, that is very present in the collection that to me was just, yeah, it was like those details were details like any other. I, I can't explain it. Do you in your day-to-day life or as a child have like a strong reaction to that sort of stuff like bodily fluids and are you grossed out easily or not easily at all I think I am grossed out about as much as the average person I don't think I'm particularly grossed out by things I will say I was talking to somebody about this the other day I will say that I think like bodily things come up in my day-to-day conversations <laughs> like with my my husband or my son or my mom or my close friends like and I don't know maybe you can tell me I don't know if that's like common or uncommon but I do feel like it's an aspect of daily life that like gets talked about as part of daily life and something that I am genuinely genuinely interested in doing in my work is representing life the way it exists, represent like the way we actually experience it. And so to the extent that these kinds of conversations and these kinds of experiences are things that are very much part of our life, but maybe don't end up on the page that often. It's certainly true that I was trying to put on the page like life as it as it is, right? So to the extent that like I experience those things and talk about those things, they made their way onto the page. Yeah, I think there's an intimacy to it for most of us. I think maybe people who work in the medical profession, I think parents of young children often have a comfort level with grossness yes. and bodily fluids. I mean, that's just part of the deal. So I think you become maybe more immersed and it becomes more day-to-day when you're in that phase of life. But otherwise, it seems to me like, as you say, this stuff is part of our lived reality, but it tends to be private, I think, for most people. I don't think the really <laughs> gross stuff or like, you know, I don't know, just dealing with like pooping, you know, this is something you kind of do with the door closed and you pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> yes. And you don't really talk about it much, you know, maybe you do. But what's interesting to me is the ways in which we sort of go through all the all these experiences on a personal level and it doesn't bother us too much most of us anyway and yet if it's somebody else it's like ew yeah <laughs> you know it's like, true yeah we're more grossed out by others than we are by ourselves despite the fact that we are doing essentially the same stuff that's true and it relates i think brad to i mean now that the book is out and i can read it critically as well as sort of representing myself as its as author i think something that occurs to me even though that i even though i can't say that it occurred to me 
consciously while I was writing the collection is that there is a relationship, I think, between writing about bodily things, um, especially like the things that our bodies secrete, like the things that are part of our bodies, but also not part of our bodies. I think there's a relationship between that and like this sort of animating question of the collection having to do with the porousness of the self, right? In that like the fluids we excrete and like the hairs that come off of our body are things that like are both of us and not of us, right? Like there are things that are like part of the outside world as well as part of us. And so there's a, it's a way I think to kind of render symbolically the, the kind of animating intellectual or emotional question in the collection. There's one, um, there's a story in the collection called the 18 girls that I'm thinking about now that you bring it up in which this character sees this like encrusted booger on the floor of her kindergarten classroom <laughs> right. and has this question about like whether our boogers are part of us or not part of us. Right. When we like excrete one, it does it, is it like losing a limb? Right. Is it like, are we, have we lost a part of ourselves the way we think we would think about losing a part of ourselves if we were to lose, lose a limb or, you know, something like that. Um, and so I think, um, I think it does relate in that sense to, to, to some of the questions that the book is about. It's, it's actually a really good question. Thank you. I think, I mean, well, I mean, like I'm speaking specifically to this character wondering about the booger, but I think on a larger level, this question about the self and what is the self cannot be asked enough. I think more people, I, I encourage everyone to sit around thinking about what a self is. I'm fascinated by that because it is very porous when you start to drill down into it. And these things are not as settled as they seem. And as I think contemporary society would have us believe, you know, there are very blurry lines that we exist within as selves. I mean, is absolutely. that your take on it? Yes, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, I'm Indian American and grew up in a Indian American family. My parents were immigrants. Um, and I don't want to overstate the role of that in the way I think about it. But I do think that, um, that in my family's culture and in the family cultures of a, of a lot of people, not just from India, there's a kind of like understanding of communal identity and societal identity, family identity, like identity within, you know, a sibling relationship or a parent-child relationship, like sort of the way in which, um, in which identity always sort of exists within a collective, a collective sense of identity. And I think that probably does inform the way I think about identity just as a human, as a writer. And I think that made its way into the book. There's a really impressive versatility to these stories. Like you're dealing in so many different worlds and in so many different characters' lives. And yet, of course, there are these binding threads. And one of the things that is attached, I think, to this concern with the self and to these uh, bodily concerns has to do with grief. I feel like grief and death are present throughout this collection. And I know you have been through very difficult loss. You lost your sister Krishna in 2001 to cancer. There's a story in the book called uh, The Irates, where there is a character whose brother has died. And I feel like 
having gone through a very difficult loss at close range is bound to inform anyone's life and of course their artistic life and thematic concerns like this is something that you have had to take a like a very painful look at right that's right yeah i always i think identified somewhat as a writer including as a kid but the first real writing sort of sustained writing i ever did was in college. Um, my sister passed away when I was a freshman in college, and I took the spring quarter off and went back to Seattle when you know she was in her last months and spent time with my family and had, had the summer there and then came back to college my sophomore year in the fall and took my first creative writing class then. And so the with, first- With Adam Johnson. With Adam Johnson, that's right, yeah. At Stanford, right? At Stanford, and um, it was it was a really, kind of seminal moment for me in that I was dealing with um, this really recent important loss in my life. And I was coming to understand myself as as a writer, you know, um, and those two things really became intertwined for me in a way that like, I think they're still intertwined. Like I became a writer while trying to understand is the wrong word, I guess, trying to sort of feel and think my way through the loss of my sister. I think writing, like those of us who write, whether we identify publicly as writers or not, are often doing it not because there's something that we want to say, but because there's something that like we don't quite understand. Like we don't, we don't, we can't, not that we don't understand it because there's so much all of us don't understand, but that we can't quite articulate, right? Like there's something that we're going through that we can't even begin to express and so we write to try to make our way toward an understanding or articulation of what's happening and that's what I was doing in that first creative writing class I ever took and so I think because those are my roots as a writer in part because of that like it's something that I just keep returning to especially in my short stories because the short story form was kind of the first form I learned. It was the form I was writing at that time in my life when I was learning to become a writer. And so I think, I sort of think every time I sit down to write a story, it ends up being somehow about about grief or about close relationships where there's there's some kind of rupture. I, I, I don't know if that's like, that'll always be the case for me um, or if it's only the case for the stories in this collection, but certainly like there's a real interlinkage for me between those things. No doubt. I, I, I'm somewhat similar. In high school, a good friend of mine's older brother died of cancer. Mm, yeah, I'm sorry. And then when I was a sophomore, just down the I think you're in Fort Collins, right? Yeah. So I was at Boulder uh, for college, and one of my friends took his own life when mm. I was, what, a junior? Well, yeah. Sophomore, yeah. junior? Yeah, anyway. Those two things like rocked me. Like I was like, yeah. holy, you know, it just, I was not prepared for either and to see both at kind of close range or mm. not to like witness, uh, you know, somebody dying necessarily, but just to see the decline with the cancer of my friend's older brother and then to just suddenly have my friend check out like that. Yeah. I look back on those two losses and I wonder, it's hard to say, but I wonder if I would have written anything. Mm. or published anything had it not been for those two things. Do you ever have that conversation with yourself? If your sister had not passed away, do you think you would have taken this path? Would you still be writing and publishing fiction? I don't know. No, it's such a good question because 
Right. Like the, the reason I think the, the reason I was so drawn to writing in that class was because it was offering me something like it was helping. It was profoundly helping me through this experience that I was having in the wake of my sister's death. And so, yeah, like what does a counterfactual look like? I, I, I think it's very, very possible. Like I would have been drawn to it for some other reason, right? Like there's, there's that possibility, but it's equally possible that it wouldn't have played that role for me because I wouldn't have had that experience in the wake of which I needed writing. And so, yeah, maybe I would have gone into some other field entirely or would have like become a journalist and editor, which I also am, but not have pursued the creative path. Yeah, no, I do think about that. I'm wondering too, like spiritually, you mentioned kind of your upbringing and your family's background. Uh, your parents are immigrated from India, correct? Both parents? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you have kind of that foundation. I don't know if there was any kind of religious upbringing. Are you, what is it, Hindu or is it Buddhism? What is it? Or um, nothing? There are, the the majority religion in India is Hinduism, but there are Buddhists, there are Muslims, there are Christians. Um, uh, there are all kinds of religions, obviously, represented in, in India. My parents are both not religious, um, which is relatively unusual, I would say, especially among Indian immigrant communities in the U.S., but they both sort of rejected uh, organized religion. I think my dad might identify somewhat as Buddhist now, but they were not religious. I didn't grow up with religion in any way. I was always, I think, intrigued by religion just as a as like a reader and a writer. I was intrigued by the sort of like narrative contained within religion. Um, I would like as a kid, I remember going to church with Christian friends and like hearing those Bible stories and just like they were good stories, you know. And so I found that compelling. What happened was when my sister was sick, she became interested in all kinds of religion and Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and would like would talk about religion in a way that like nobody ever had talked about religion in our family before. And I think like that experience of hearing that and squaring it with like the way we'd been as a family or the way she and I had been as sisters or the way she had been as an individual was like confusing but also I saw something valuable in it. You know, I don't I don't identify as religious in any way, but I think like part of me wants to, you know, um, like I think there's something beautiful and and moving and like useful about religion. Um, and so especially I think like while my sister was sick and then after she passed away, especially in those first, I don't know, 10 or 15 years after she passed away, I think like those ideas that she had, those things that she was talking about when she was sick before she passed away, like were always kind of filtering through my consciousness. I was always kind of thinking about them. What 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 were the ideas? Oh, I mean nothing 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 particularly, you know, like theologically groundbreaking, I'm sure, but she would talk about she would talk about like the the meaning of finding purpose in life, right? The value, I should say, of finding sort of like determining one's own purpose in life. The idea that we're all here for some reason. Um, the idea that like we're all cared for, that there's some energy or God or whatever that like takes an interest in, a, in us and wants to see us thrive. Um, those kinds of things. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because I feel like when you, I mean, I, I went through this, like it does force upon you 
a kind of reckoning. Like, what do I think? Yeah. What does happen after somebody passes away? What's going to happen when I die? Like, suddenly you're questioning and trying to make sense of like life and death. And I think maybe this is where fiction can be a lure and a comfort because it's a great space to explore questions. It's not really a place for answers, right? It's the place where you get to be in that like middle area or that gray zone, as I like to call it. I'm, I feel it in this collection, you know, like we've been talking about this issue of boundaries and the body, but did you, like, have you come to any conclusions or do you have like a system of operation in life that is derived from these experiences of loss and maybe these creative experiences that have resulted? No, not at all. <laughs> what I what I can say, I think, and again, it's hard to know whether this is like derives directly from lessons from my sister or lessons from watching what she went through and and her passing away or whether I would have come to come to it in 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 some other way. But I do feel that it's important to me to sort of honor and appreciate the the lives that we do have and the world that we're in and the experiences past and present that we've been given. And I think I bring that up in part because I think that's a kind of worldview that um, is present in the collection. The idea that like there there's grief and there's suffering and yet like here we are and how lucky is that you know I I certainly that that is certainly something that my sister imparted and when it comes to like setting out to define your purpose in life as she like talked about as she was dealing with her illness like is that something you took to heart like when you when it comes to writing fiction for example because as you mentioned earlier you also do work as a journalist and an editor like, was there some sort of moment you had in your college years or shortly thereafter where you sort of charted your course or said, this is, Hmm. this is my purpose in life? You know, it's interesting because for me, for me, those questions of purpose feel less tied to my work or my art actually than to my actual personal relationships which is funny to say because I think like anybody around me would describe me as artistically and professionally ambitious. And I certainly like I spend a lot of my time working on my on my art. But for me, um, I guess for me, my writing, including including my creative writing, but also including my journalistic writing and my work as an editor and my work as a teacher, all of that feels like an expression of an expression of like my interest in relationships among people between people and among people and the kind of um like the value the value of those um and it's something like it's something that matters to me in my personal life and so it's something that I write about um and I'm sure I know it's the case that like my work my 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 writing is really important to me and my my journalism and my teaching is really important to me um but it feels like if if someone were to ask me about like that question about purpose I think it would have more to do actually with with the with the real world relationships I have Yeah I mean this is definitely a collection that has relationships on its mind and I'm wondering I feel like I think I've probably complained about this on this show 
before multiple times, but I feel like adults, adult, most adult humans struggle with relationships. Kids, yeah. kids, it's easier. It's like, hey, you want to play? Let's go play. Like it's, they, they have like an instant kind of camaraderie. Whereas I feel like the older you get, the harder it is to make a friend and keep a friend or even to know what it means to be a friend. Like these are things that I think about because, you know, there's casual friends, which is like most people where you can hang out, have a good time, maybe even have like a meaningful conversation, but you better not ask too much of them. Otherwise they'll peace out. Like the measure of somebody who truly cares about you is somebody who's willing to like sacrifice time, energy, resources to help you. If you're down or if you're going through something, you sort of find out about people when you go through something or by seeing who are, who are the people who kind of stick around. But I don't know. It feels like a lot of human relationship is pretty cheap. <laughs> Does that, yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound too negative because I think we only have so much energy to give to the world, you know, like you can't expect everybody to kind of be like super deep with everybody in their lives, but it just feels like people are so consumed with their own stuff that they don't have much energy to give to others. And that, that applies to me. You know, I'm sure there are many times I swing and miss, you know, in friendships that I have with people where they're, I don't even see them. I have no idea that they even needed something. And there I was like self-consumed, you know, but this is something yeah. you think about. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, I uh, I got an email from my friend and UK publisher, Claire Drysdale, this morning. We both have eight-year-olds, um, and they've hung out a total of three times, I think. And she just sent me this email about something else, and she said, P.S., um, Theo just commented to me this morning, apropos of nothing, that... Um, that it's so interesting that he's only seen Covey, my son, he's only seen Covey three times in his life and they're really good friends. And it was so, you know, Covey would say the same thing about, um, about Claire's son, Theo. And it's true, true that there's this, um, I mean, I think it's like a lack of inhibitions or a, a sort of lower level of inhibition when you're a kid than when you're an adult. That plays a plays a role in that. You know, it would be hard for me, I think, to meet someone three times and say to myself, oh, that's that's one of my really good friends, you know. And then I think also, you know, I think my work, my novel deals with it more explicitly than my story collection. But I am concerned, I think maybe partly as a being having a background as a business reporter with the way that capitalism exerts itself on us. And I think also it's not part of it is psychological, but I think part of it is that as adults living in a capitalistic system and world and society, like we face a lot of pressure that makes it difficult to to show up in that way as an adult as we did when we were younger. So I think that plays a role too. So in your novel that you're referring to is The Immortal King Rao. That's right. Nominated for the Pulitzer Prize or Pulitzer Prize finalist. Yeah. So as a human being in your day-to-day who is thinking a lot about relationships and I'm imagining you want to be like good at being a human in relationship to other humans like do you work really hard at it are you a person who has a ton of close friends do you like schedule time and are you really good about being social i would not say that i am particularly good at any of that no i would not i would not i i you know having said that it's important to me i would not argue that i'm any better at it or worse than than anyone else um 
That said, you know, I learned some tricks. I, I started some things during the pandemic with friends that are that are useful. So with a couple of my closest friends, we have these weekly phone calls where we'll like we have a time on our calendars where we make sure we get on the phone and like go for a walk. I go over to my my mom lives down the street from us now and I go over to her house every morning for breakfast, which, you know, has the benefit of like serving my selfish private needs in addition to being time to connect with my mom. So, you know, I, I do those kinds of things. I have with a couple of my closest friends in town, like we have a weekly we have a weekly lunch hangout, but I wouldn't see you do make time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I so the takeaway from this podcast should be that I'm an amazing friend. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I feel like some people are better at it than others or more naturally inclined. You know, you have people who just kind of like effortlessly social. I kind of marvel at those people. <laughs> uh, I think where I'm at is like, I feel like the older you get, it's good to just have like a few really close friends. No, I would get behind that. I agree with you. I agree with you. My son says you should have only, you should have a best friend in each city, but only one. About in every city? <laughs> yeah, in every city. <laughs> He's a very worldly child. I mean, he, This clearly. kid Theo I mentioned, his, this kid Theo is his best friend in London. Yeah, that's good. That, that does make, it is nice to have a friend in a city when you're visiting. You know, somebody to right. help you, maybe a place to crash. <laughs> exactly. That, that kind exactly. of stuff. I think it's sound. Yeah, it it's is sound advice. Uh, so you mentioned your novel, The Immortal King Rao, which was your debut, right? That's right. I mean, that's quite a debut. Thank you. I mean, right? Not very many debut novels get uh, become a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And, uh, you know, and also a very well-reviewed book. That's a very strong debut. And I was reading about you as I was prepping and I believe your father was instrumental in the genesis of that novel, right? At least partial. Like That's right. Part of yeah. the, the core of that novel is due to a conversation you had with your dad. That's right. Yeah, I was, um, I was on a train in Peru with my dad. My dad's wife is Brazilian, and we, were, we went to Brazil, and then we traveled to Peru. And I remember on this train ride, my dad, I was in graduate school, and my dad was teasing me about work, work, writing short stories, actually, ironically, now that I have this collection coming out. He was like, nobody reads short stories. The novels are where it's at. Like, you need to write a novel. And then I, teasing him back, was like, all right, dad, give me an idea for a novel then, if it's so easy. And he gave me a couple of really bad ideas, one of which was like a Romeo and Juliet, but set um, in <laughs> in Israel and Palestine. <laughs> And I will say no more about that horrible idea. <laughs> horrible for me. Good idea for somebody else, I'm sure. Horrible for me. Um, and then he said, well, you know, why don't you write about our family coconut grove? Like, that's a good story. And in fact, our family coconut grove in India, where my dad grew up and where we still have family, like, is a fascinating place. Um, and my family story on my dad's side is a fascinating story. And so when he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should write that. And I started working on this novel that was about this child growing up on a coconut grove in the 1950s in India. And what happened was I had just recently been working as a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal, writing about writing, especially about Oracle and therefore researching tech companies started in um, the U.S. in the 1970s, including Oracle, but also Microsoft and Apple and like 
reading oral histories of those times just so that I could do a good job on my beat, which was covering Oracle. And so that ended up sort of filtering into my mind as I was working on this novel, too. And I ended up sending this kid who grows up on the coconut grove in India in the 1950s to the U.S. in the 70s to start a tech company. And that's sort of like the premise from which the novel evolves. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Yeah, you know, it's, the reason I want to talk about this, I mean, A, it's interesting, but B, I feel like this is often the case with novels is that it's rarely just one idea. The magic is in the combination. You know, you start with that family story, the kernel of this coconut grove in your family and kind of that personal history reaching back through time. But it is not until you combine that with the work that you were doing as a tech reporter and with this interest that you have in Oracle and these, you know, big tech companies that formed in the 1970s that the novel really coalesced, right? And then... We should say too that you also had to arrive at. Is, um, forgive me if I screw this up. Is it Athena? Athena, yes. Yeah, it was like the voice of the novel was sort of the final puzzle piece. Yeah. Where once you figured out her voice and her story, that then you really had something, right? That's it's like right. those. Yeah. Those are the three big things. That's right. Yeah, Athena is the daughter of King Rao, who's narrating the story, and she was the last piece to evolve. What happened was I wanted to write about this family coconut grove and like Silicon Valley in the 1970s. And I didn't feel that I had the chops to write about those things like in the first person, for example, or in a close third person perspective, you know, like writing about King Rao as if you're right there alongside him because I hadn't had those experiences that I was trying to write about, even though I could research them. And I was watching Battlestar Galactica at the time, like the Battlestar Galactica from the 2000s, where there's this technology let, that lets certain characters access the minds, the consciousnesses of these other characters. And I was like, oh, well, if I could have a technology like that in the book, that would solve my writing problem, like my authority problem, because I could have somebody else telling the story, but with all the information they would need about this character to tell that character's story. And so for a long time, it was like, I didn't know who that voice was. Like, I thought it might be like a like a weird, like, bleep bloop computer program telling the story. Like, it was disembo- this, like, disembodied voice for a long time. And then eventually I realized that it was King's daughter, Athena, who was using this technology to tell his story. You say this on the day, and I was just looking online at this before we, we uh, started our conversation. But I believe Elon Musk's Neuralink is now about to start human trials with its chip implants, brain implants, which <laughs> seems very ominous. I don't know who these guinea pigs are, but my God, you couldn't you could not pay me enough money to have one I of those know. chips put in my head. I know. And you know, when I started writing the book, Neuralink didn't exist. And over the course I spent a long time writing the book. So over the course of writing it suddenly like Neuralink was there and Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, was behind it. And I was like, wait a minute, did you 
read an early draft of my novel or something. Well, but I mean, I feel like this book, uh, The Immortal King Rao, I, I feel like artists do their best work when they do the work that only they could do, right? I mean, it's like, it just makes a lot of sense with your family history and with this work that you're doing as a tech reporter in the Bay Area. Like, who else could write that novel but you, right? You know, I mean, maybe somebody could, but it just feels like yeah. this combination of experiences that you put to good use and it was a long haul. It took you 13 years to write that novel. It did, yeah. I've, um, I love stories like that. It took me 10 years to write my book. And so, yeah, so you anybody, know. Who, anybody who can beat me, I'm like, yes, thank you. <laughs> it takes a long time to write a book, especially when you got other shit going on. Like It does. It does. You know, and it's really great. I love, um, I love telling people that, especially students of mine, because I have students, writing students, who will be like, I've been working on this project for three years. I'll be like, you know, I know somebody who's been working on a project for 10, who, you know, was working on a project for 10 years more than that. I still haven't met a student, at least, who's come anywhere near the 13 years it took me to write that novel. Um, the story collection took about that long, too. And I think it's partly because I really, truly do love the revision process. Like, I really like staying in a project. I don't know if this is true for you with, with that first book of yours, if it was partly that. And then, of course, it also is you know, you're nobody's paying you to write these books while you're writing them and you've got to make a living, right? So there are all kinds of other things that you need to be doing with most of your hours to sustain yourself and your family. Well, and yeah, I was going to say, and you're a mom, you know, you've got a young child, like that stuff takes up time. But exactly. I feel like too, like just as a temperamental thing, maybe it's such a long shot that you're going to make serious money with a book and there's no need for another book. There are so many books. So if I'm going to make a book, I, it has got to be the very best I can possibly do. Yes. Otherwise, I'm not publishing it. <laughs> and unle unless and until I get to that point, it's going to sit on my hard drive. I'm, that's just the way I am. I, you know, maybe if I had some, I mean, maybe it's different for you now that you have like this Pulitzer nomination and there are people like ready and willing to publish you. I'm imagining, you know, you have a little bit more latitude in that way. Uh, maybe it's different and you feel a greater sense of urgency because there might actually be like a real incentive, <laughs> like financial incentive to keep making books. But I think for most writers, you know, what's the use in putting out something that's not your very best? Like, I don't see the point. Yeah, I think that's right. But I'm curious, as somebody who also spent 10 plus years on a book, like, do you, because for me, I still feel like I'm like, uh, if I had just had like a decade more on that novel, it would have been better. Or with the stories too, like if someone had just given me like another five years, I would have nailed it. Did you like, I don't know, do you think it's like, and you talk to a lot of other authors too, do you feel like that's just the lot of being a writer? Like you never quite feel like you nailed it? I think so, if you're being honest. But I also feel like, you know, there is a point at which there are diminishing returns in the editorial process. Yeah. Where, you know, if you're kind of just going over the same thing and you're just moving some words around, you can sort of sense that. I think maybe it's like as time goes by, you haven't looked at the book in a while. One day you sort of pick it up off the shelf and start flipping through. You go, ugh. All you can see are like the warts, you know. Oh, and my God. Yeah. That's not, I think that's natural. But at a certain point, you do have to let it go. I will say that with the, my most recent book anyway, I haven't had the kinds of lingering feelings of doubt or I wish I could go back and fix it that I had with mm -hmm. my first novel. 
Um, yeah. I think I the second way too with my second book. Yeah. Maybe that's part, maybe that's just part of like the process of maturation or you just, I don't know, but that's just been the case. And I think, you know, if you take a decade on a book, you better be reasonably comfortable with it right. <laughs> by the time it goes out, you know, but you know, another key point to make, and I think one that listeners who are writers would benefit uh, from hearing you talk about, has to do with the uncertainty of the process. Uh, I've had people on this show countless times talk about this and, ha- and the necessity of having to learn to live with uncertainty, creative uncertainty. This is a novel that did very well got nominated, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, like dream scenario for anybody writing literary fiction. And yet there were many moments over the course of those 13 years when you had serious doubts about whether or not it was ever going to be completed or if it was completed, if it would ever be published or if it was workable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can remember one moment in particular that is like, a very obvious one when I, I was in when I was in graduate school, I got this this literary agent interested in in representing me. And, you know, she I was like, sure, it sounds great. An agent. Perfect. Sign me up. So wait, um, and you were and at she, I, you were you were at Iowa for I was at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. Okay, for graduate right. school. Um, I won't say this agent's name, but but this agent became my agent in, I guess, 2009 or 2010. And in 2015, I gave her what I thought was like my almost done draft of my book for her to, you know, give me edits on and then we would send it to publishers and she read it. And then we got on the phone and she was like, yeah, so I don't, I don't really, I don't see it. I don't know. And I was like, all right, well, what are your notes? Like, just tell me what you think and I'll, I'll fix everything. And she was like, yeah, I don't, basically she was like, I think it's beyond fixing. I don't, I don't see anything here. And we hung up and I was like, so now what? And then I called her again and was like, so are you, are you kind of saying maybe you should not be my agent? And she was like, yeah, I think that would be best. And so I didn't have an agent anymore and more emotionally relevant. Like I, I had this person who I had sort of trusted to, like being the my represent the representative of the book out in the real world telling me like you have nothing here this is not viable and it was a real setback for me like psychologically artistically and what happened was i ended up my husband the writer andrew altschul went to graduate school with an amazing writer named brando skyhorse um who, who, who was recently re- guested on my show Oh, amazing. I haven't listened to that one yet. Yeah. So Brando is a high school, was a grad school colleague of Andrew's and was represented by my dream agent, Susan Gollum, and made an introduction to Susan. And Susan read the same manuscript that the previous agent hated. And interestingly, didn't like she wasn't like, this is brilliant, the best book I've ever read by any means. But she did see the promise in it, I think. Like, she saw all kinds of problems, just like the previous agent had, because there were all kinds of problems, but also saw, like, what was interested in, interesting in it and, like, thought she could give me some useful notes and thought that if I worked on it a bit longer, it would get good. And she made a bet on it and rep- decided to represent me. And then, you know, another five years later, she sold the book. Okay. So here's a question. 
the version of the manuscript that you handed to Susan Gollum after this previous agent had, you know, you'd had a falling out with, did it include the Athena voice? Like how far evolved was the story and your understanding of it by the time you handed it to Susan that first time? That's a great question. If it had Athena in it, Athena was in it, but she was barely in it. Like it was unclear. She had no storyline. She was barely in it. And it was, she was just sort of this narrative voice telling the story of King Rao, but it was nothing about her as a character was, was very developed at all. Was the technology where she could access her father like through this kind of like Neuralink-like device, was that in there at that point? That was in there, but I will tell you that I remember one of Susan's big notes to me, and a lot of people had this note, was like, this makes no sense. Like the, I, I don't know, it, maybe it's partly because like we, like technologies like that weren't being talked about in the real, real world yet, so it seemed really unconceivable. But a lot of, but I think also it was the writing. I think the writing wasn't there yet. A lot of people read earlier drafts and were like, wait, what are you saying that this character can do? Like, what exactly is she doing here? Is that how, can you like write about it? I mean, in a fictional way, but like in a plausible enough fictional way that like we believe that this actually is something that could happen. Yeah, it was like, it was all, that was all so, it was, it was a nightmare. It was so hard to develop that aspect of the, of the book. It really is what came last. And it's interesting because a lot of the reviews I later read or like in interviews I later did around the novel, the part that I think really feels like the most present, interesting part to a lot of people isn't the stuff on the coconut grove or the stuff in the 1970s, but is like the kind of the part that's set in the dystopian future from which Athena's narrating the book, which came in the last, you know, I spent 13 years working on the book. And I think most of that material came in like the last five years. But it's also, it makes sense. It makes emotional sense to me that, you know, as a reader, you want to know what the consequences are of the life of Rao and the company that he built and the technology that it disseminated around the world. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Like psychologically, if I had a student who was working on this book with like material in the distant past and then the kind of distant past and then something happening sort of like in con contemporary-ish times, I would tell that student, people are going to be most interested in the contemporary story. And the details of Athena's life. Yes. Because yeah. it it's like the heart of the book. You know, it, right. hu it humanizes it and it gives it, like I think, a, like a heart dimension is like the way I think I would characterize yeah. it. And it's just interesting how we come to these things over the course of a creative project. And they seem so obvious with the benefit of hindsight. And yet they weren't obvious at all as you were like working your way through that decade plus. Right. And there are so many things that you tried doing over that decade plus that aren't in what people read now that are like all the failed attempts, like all the things that you thought were the thing that needed to happen in the book. And you, but you feel like the like the thing if you had to point to one thing that really brought the novel into a workable form was by telling Athena's story like that was the piece that was missing and yes. that once you did that and you handed it back to Susan it was like okay it's go time like this works 
Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as like, it, it was like, it was I, long, I made, I, by know. the way, I made this sound like Top Gun or something. Like the two of you were like, <laughs> let's have, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's do this thing. Yeah. Um, um, no, I mean, what the reason I'm laughing is because, you know, that was Susan read several drafts. My husband, Andrew, also a writer, as I said, read, you know, a good half dozen drafts of the book. Friends read. I really relied on other people. Speaking of the por- the porousness between the self and other, I, as a writer, too, like, really, really rely on the feedback of others in shaping anything I write. And certainly with this book, like... There were so many points over those 13 years where I was at a loss and then somebody else told me what to do, you know, and, and Susan was that person many times. I'm the easiest person to edit. Like you tell me anything, I believe you. I'm like, yes. Yeah, yeah, in the same way. That. I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah, we'll do well. I'll get rid of that character. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. If you don't like it, I don't like it, you know, but That's right. I think as a process issue, I think I used to be more guarded I used to, maybe I had kind of like a foolish confidence. I was like, you know what? I've, I'm going to know when this is re- you know, ready and then I'm going to hand it to my agent. I have totally, I discarded that with my last book. I had many people read it before I handed it to her. And I just think as like a quality control issue to use like a tech industry term, you know, I think it's actually really wise to have like friends, writer friends, to hire a developmental editor if you can afford it, to kind of take the book through its paces in that way before you start submitting it to publishers or even handing it to your agent can be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's also like any book, any piece of writing is ultimately a piece of communication, right? Between like your consciousness and some reader's consciousness. And you don't, because we're all not totally knowable to one another. It's like you have no idea whether what you intend to convey is actually showing up on the page in a way that like other people are going to be able to interpret, you know, the, the way you had in mind or like a, in a way that's equally satisfying. Um, and the only way you can know how that what that's going to look like is by trying, you know, like experimenting and having having a bunch of different people, ideally trusted people who, you know, whose opinions you you believe in read read the book so you publish that book you take it out on submission i imagine susan sells it quickly or did it take a while it took a minute it wasn't you know you hear all the stories of like a book selling over a weekend or whatever and this certainly wasn't that it was a couple of weeks um or more maybe more than a month um it wasn't some kind of like immediate everybody wants to publish this book kind of situation Okay. So, which I think is the norm, rather, you know, that's the rule yeah. rather than the exception. And at what point, once the book goes out, do you feel like it, like maybe this thing has a chance or did you, did you have that mm-hmm. moment where like the reviews started to come in or you started to hear from readers and then like, like as in tandem with that question would be like the becoming a Pulitzer finalist. I have to imagine that sort of uh, like helped, like that had to kind of what's the word? Like give it some juice. Like suddenly there's a lot of interview requests and probably more readers are coming your way, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like the, the one exciting moment early on was, I think it was maybe the weekend before the book published or maybe the same day or something, the New York Times published their review by this critic, Justin Taylor, who I really admire 
that Espe- especially was, after especially after he reviewed your book so well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now I really admire him. Before right. May 2022, you know, <laughs> couldn't no. care less about the guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but he, yeah, he wrote this glowing review, and not only was it glowing, but I felt like he he sort of talked about some of the things in the book that mattered to me. You know, like I said, you never know and can, can't really control what how other people are going to read the book you know um but he read it in like sort of like close to the way that i was hoping people would read it and i think that was a significant moment for me um and then with the pulitzer thing yeah that was like a a total shock it's not one of those i don't know maybe if you win they tell you i don't know do you know all i like i was just scrolling through twitter and saw it okay i just had i actually did like what i called like a pulitzer special where i talked to like I had had these people on the show and then I talked to them after the Pulitzer experience. I had oh. er, like Ernan Diaz who won for uh, his novel Trust. Yeah. And then uh, Ingrid Rojas Contreras who uh, had a, her memoir was a finalist. Yeah. And I was talking to them about this very thing where it's like you're just kind of going through your daily life and then suddenly your phone starts blowing up. <laughs> you know, like, so, they just so what drop did he the news. Say? What did Aaron, he's a friend, so is Ingrid. But what did he say? Did like did they tell him before or he just sees it, saw no, the announcement? He was on book tour, I think, for yeah. the paperback. I, I could be botching this, but he was in, I want to say, South Carolina. He was at like a greasy spoon. I think he had to catch a flight later that day to like go back home. But he's like, I'm gonna get like biscuits and gravy and uh, have a beer. You know what I'm saying? It was like a, it was like noon. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like, suddenly his phone rings and it's like his agent or something mm. calling to tell him, and he goes outside and is like weeping, <laughs> and then there are these like three like little old ladies from South Carolina who are like, Are you okay, sir? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then like he tells them, he's like, I just won the Pulitzer Prize, and then they're all like group hugging, you know, like. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's all different ways, but I feel like with the Pulitzer in particular, they just sort of drop the news online. Yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was, we were living in Madrid for a year, which was amazing. Um, But we were living in Madrid and my husband was out of town. He was on some kind of, where was he? Anyway, he was traveling. And I, so I was solo parenting and I had all these like back-to-back phone calls I had to do at night with people in the US. So I like had just put my kid to bed and I was on one phone call and then I had two minutes in between and I was scrolling through Twitter and then suddenly saw this news that I was a finalist for my novel and then I had to get on my next call with I'm teaching this year at Colorado State as a I'm teaching in the creative nonfiction program. And so my call was with the writer Karis, Harrison Candelaria Fletcher, who's the the sort of full time uh, nonfiction faculty member here. Uh, and a friend. And so I get on the phone with him and I'm like, Harrison, I, I, my book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It was like the first thing I said and all I could talk about for the first five minutes of the call. And then, you know, we ended up having, you know, I, I, like it, it was a meeting. It was a call to talk about to plan for the year ahead. So, but I had to get that out first. How do you, yeah, how do you deal like with like normal Zoom calls after that? Yeah. You sort of need a minute, you need a minute yeah. <laughs> to like process it. But what were, I'm curious, what were you doing in Madrid for a year? So my husband teaches creative writing at Colorado State and had a sabbatical and I can work from anywhere with all the various things that I do for, to make a living. And so we took off and decided to go to Spain. Andrew had spent a bunch of time in Peru and his novel, The Gringa, is set in Peru and he's, a very conversational Spanish speaker. 
But I grew up in Canada and learned French growing up and Covey didn't have Spanish. And so we both wanted to learn. And so we went and spent the year there and I took immersive Spanish. I was taking like two or three hours of Spanish every weekday for a year. And Covey was in bilingual school and we just spent the year in Madrid and had a really nice time. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. So before we go anywhere else, I do want to talk to you about the work that you do as a journalist, which informed, as we've been discussing, the immortal King Rao and might inform some of the stories in some ways. But in particular, the timing of your journalism career, like you come out of Stanford undergrad, you are hired by the Wall Street Journal as a tech reporter in the Bay Area covering Oracle, correct? That's right, yeah. This is like 2005, 2006. That's right, yeah. Larry Ellison is presiding over his kingdom. A young Mark Zuckerberg is building his. You had interactions with Zuckerberg as a young reporter in the Bay Area covering the tech beat? I did, yeah. So what happened was I had gone to Stanford. I graduated in 2004, which was the year that Facebook started. And they started at Harvard, but one of the next university campuses, they started on university campuses. So one of the next campuses they opened on was Stanford. And I was working um, like at the school paper, the Stanford Daily, as an editor when they did that. And so I was like, I was covering this like phenomenon on campus um, or rather editing the journalists who were covering this new phenomenon on campus and was like very aware of this. And then when I graduated that year, some of the kids I graduated for went to like work at Facebook and ended up being, you know, among the first 50 or 100 or whatever employees at Facebook. So it was very much in the zeitgeist sort of socially. And then I graduated in 2004 and I actually went to New York for a year or so to work for the Wall Street Journal in New York. But then I came back and got this job in the San Francisco Bureau. And what was happening was that nobody was really covering Facebook at some of the major publications because it wasn't the way business journalism, business reporting at that time was conceived was that you would cover publicly traded companies like startups were new enough that you didn't really cover them closely unless they were big public companies. And so there was no Facebook beat at the Wall Street Journal at that time. It was still a pretty small company. But I and I think other young reporters in general across the field um, felt like there was a story here. And so I started writing here and there about Facebook and nobody else was really interested. It wasn't like a hot beat that people were coveting or clamoring to, 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 to you know, be assigned to. And so I ended up being the first Facebook reporter. I was the Oracle reporter, but they added Facebook to my beat because I just was the only one who was interested in writing about this company. Like at that time, young people were on Facebook, but older people weren't really, which I know is a reversal from how it is now. I was going to say. And so through that, I, yeah, I wrote the journal's first big stories on Facebook. I interviewed Mark Zuckerberg. What were your, what were your impressions at that point, at that moment? You know, I have to say he came across to me. This is going to be a funny adjective, I think, to hear in today's context. But he came across to me as as somewhat humble, as having sort of like having a, a humble approach to the job, feeling like like he bit off a lot, not necessarily more than he could chew, but he bit off a lot with this with this project. He started this company he was trying to start and he wanted to do a good job. And he was getting advice from a lot of people about how to do a good job. But because it's Silicon Valley, 
like the people, the most influential people he was getting advice from were like people, you know, prominent investors and business people in Silicon Valley who were giving him advice about like how to, I'm not saying that like it's their fault and not his that, you know, Facebook grew into what it grew into. But I think like the, what I'm saying is that the building of Facebook ended up sort of coming, like it came out of this particular Silicon Valley culture that had certain business oriented capitalistic ideals. And I think Mark Zuckerberg in his early twenties, like probably could have gone in any number of directions. Like maybe he could have made this a kind of like, made Facebook some kind of anarchist collective or a nonprofit or, you know, a startup that never went public or there are all kinds of routes, but he was building Facebook in the context of like the Silicon Valley that exists in the real world, not some speculative hypothetical Silicon Valley. And so I, I see him like looking at that company now and looking at Mark Zuckerberg now, it feels less, I see him less as like this sort of, um, I see him as, as sort of a product of, the kind of collective in which he that company was built. And so it gets in some ways gets back to what we were discussing earlier about like looking at people as um, not only as indi- sort of self-contained individuals, but as sort of coming from collective traditions, belonging to collective communities, having collective identity. And I think I think Mark Zuckerberg very much was shaped by Silicon Valley in the early 2000s when he arrived and like what the people around him there were doing and, and considering success. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think it's easy for people to kind of want to take like a Marvel Comics like lens and apply it to these CEO guys and these like tech founder bros. They're almost all bros, right? Yeah. Uh, and to just kind of attribute to them this sort of like evil mastermind kind of thing. But the truth is that he's like a, what, a 23, 24-year-old kid basically yeah. who is surrounded by all these money men. <laughs> who have, let's be honest, a vested interest in seeing their money grow. And so they're advising him and pushing him to do things that will maximize their profit. Exactly. That's it. And so that system, which is all about making stupid amounts of money, is what he found himself within. And to resist it, I guess, I guess he could have, but he didn't, right? Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to having spent time. Did you spend time around Larry Ellison too? Have you been able to interview him? I did. Yeah. I, I spent a little bit. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate the amount of time I spent with either of them. I probably spent somewhat more time with Mark Zuckerberg than with Larry Ellison, just because it was a smaller company and um, uh, it was, there was access was easier than to somebody like Mark Zuckerberg than someone like Larry Ellison, which probably, you know, would not be true today. Um, I didn't spend that much time with either of them, but I did interview them both. Okay. But I mean, just to be in a room with somebody like that can be interesting and informative. I'm sure it informed the way that you uh, drew King Rao on the page, right? I- I'm just wondering, like, what's your takeaway? Like, how? Do, how like, what are your feelings after mm-hmm. covering that beat for a number of years about like Silicon Valley and like tech culture and tech bro culture? And then also, like, d- did you take away any insights into what it is to be like a founder, especially at that level, you know, who are these guys? Who are these people who do this stuff? Like, is there, are there distinguishing characteristics? Yeah. You know, I think one thing that I can say 
is present in the novel and present in my sort of current worldview that probably is very much informed by that time I spent, especially in the kind of early to mid 2000s writing about tech is a sense that, again, I guess this this is related to what I was saying earlier, but a sense that like none of these individual CEOs exist in a vacuum. Um, and in fact, like just, you know, actually practically speaking, Facebook isn't Mark Zuckerberg. What Facebook is, is a bunch of investors, like people like me, people like you, many of whom probably don't even know they invest in Facebook. Like all of these people own some bit of Facebook and therefore represent to the extent that like we think of Facebook as like this giant corporation that exploits people. Like any one of those individual tiny investors, including, you know, some teacher in California who's investing through her retirement account, right? Like any one of us like is a part owner of this company and therefore partly responsible for the actions of this company. And we collectively, all of these investors collectively have decided that this guy, Mark Zuckerberg, is going to represent us. And that's really like, in terms of the formal structure of these companies, that's actually how it operates. And so if you're Mark Zuckerberg, like, sure, you have a ton of power. I don't want to understate the power that somebody like Mark Zuckerberg has. But also you're beholden to the to the requirements of like this sort of anonymous mass of, you know, of of individuals and institutions who are the actual owners of this company. And so what I think I'm interested in more than the power of individuals, sort of individual CEOs, somebody like Mark Zuckerberg or somebody like Larry Ellison, and the is the way in which we're all sort of complicit. We're all sort of culpable, equally culpable. Okay, not equally culpable. Well, we're all somewhat, um, to some extent, complicit in these structures that we belong to, which is, I think, like a more complicated stance, like a more complicated way of looking at it, a more difficult way of looking at it than to say, like, Amazon's evil, Jeff Bezos is evil, but I I do have that Prime account, but I have nothing to do with Amazon's evilness. Yeah. I do, I think maybe my retirement account technically invests in some kind of, there's some kind of mutual fund that's got Amazon in it. But anyway, that has nothing to do with me. It's, it's Jeff Bezos, you know? So yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that's sort of how I, I think about it these days. Well, it's, yeah, it's a nuanced and I think closer to the truth viewpoint. I think these kind of like fast, more facile, like easy, like kind of Marvel comics assessments of it, you know, that I, I get it. It can be convenient. It's also convenient that it totally removes you <laughs> from having any sense of responsibility or culpability, but it's not that simple. And I think as a writer who's been working on this beat as a journalist, you have you obviously have an interest in this stuff to some extent and maybe a comfort level with it that most writers of fiction don't have. I don't want to leave this conversation without talking about the essay that you wrote about your sister using AI uh, that the, I think was published in The Believer. That's right. That was yeah, really fascinating. Was. Like that, that was like a truly formally inventive and interesting and touching uh, piece of writing that integrated very explicitly technology for people who have not had a chance to read it. I believe the piece was called Ghosts. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Can you just kind of give an overview of what you did? 
Yes. So the way this connects with my journalism is that in 20, I think in 2017 or so, I wrote a profile of Sam Altman, who is one of the co-founders of OpenAI, which is the company, the organization, entity behind um, ChatGPT, as we know it now. And through that reporting, through that profile, I learned more about OpenAI and in particular, this technology that he was starting, that the that OpenAI was starting to develop called at the time GPT-2, which was this technology, a predecessor to ChatGPT, where you could go into this, in, this interface and type some words and hit a button and the algorithm would complete your text for you. So you might start like... I don't know, call me Ishmael and hit enter and you would get the rest of some text um, about some character named Ishmael. By the time I became really interested in this technology, it was called GPT-3. It was sort of the next version. And I wrote in part through those connections that I'd made from profiling Sam Altman. I wrote I wrote to him, I wrote to OpenAI and I said, hey, can I try to use this? I'm interested in my sort of with my creative writer hat on rather than with my journalist hat on. Like as a somebody who writes creatively, I'm curious about what this technology can do. Nobody was talking about it too much at the time. And they said yes. And I started playing around and I actually, the first couple of things that I did were more um, along the lines of fiction. Like I wrote, I sort of like co-wrote this fiction story that I thought turned out really well actually with, um, with GPT-3. And then it occurred to me at some point as I was playing around, like this question of what I, I started thinking about this question of like what when a technology like this becomes something that is marketed to outside, you know, in in the real world. Like I started thinking about what how these companies behind these kinds of technologies would try to appeal to people. And it occurred to me that like the appeal of a technology that could write for you, like the deepest appeal of that was to sort of like might be to help people or purport to help people express something that is otherwise difficult or really impossible for them to express. And for me, that thing was the death of my sister and my grief over it. Like it's something that I still verbally and writing have a hard time expressing, talking about, writing about. And so less because I wanted to write an essay about this and more just because I wanted to see how the technology would function if I tried to use it for that purpose, I typed in this sentence about my sister's diagnose, diagnosis with with cancer when we were in high school. And I just had, I gave it this one sentence and asked it to complete it. And it completed it in this ridiculous way that had nothing to do with my real sister or with me. And I thought, well, maybe if I write, maybe I didn't give it enough. Maybe if I write a little more, it'll get closer. And so I tried adding more to that initial sentence I wrote. And it did get a little bit closer. And I thought, well, if that worked, maybe if I write even more, it'll get even closer. And so I just kept trying and trying. And what ended up happening was um, I ended up kind of compiling nine of those attempts, the ninth of which includes a ton of writing from me and just a little bit from GPT-3 in this essay that is about my grief over my sister's death, but is also in a kind of meta way about AI about this question of like what big tech will appeal to when they start selling us these technologies, what sort of emotional need they'll be appealing to. 
So yeah, it's kind of a complicated. It turned it's 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 sort of a complicated essay that's about. You can read it on lots of different levels. Like you can read it just as an essay about my sis, my grief over my sister's death. Um, but there are other ways in which it can be read as well. Well, I think it's. I mean, the part of it that's so interesting and moving to me is that you have this technology, which is, you know, a lot of us view it as dystopian, like soulless. Uh, like super mechanical and kind of creepy, like this sort of like robot intelligence, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yet you're collaborating with it on something that is like so close to your heart. Like yeah. the most sensitive emotional territory, like in, in, in you, in your being, you know, yeah. and you are using robot intelligence to kind of suss it out. That is like a really interesting juxtaposition. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I, I actually, um, I have an essay about, partly about the process of writing that essay in the issue of Wired that's out now. It's not out when we're talking now, but it comes out tomorrow. So by the time people listen to this episode, it'll be out. Um, so I wrote this essay where like the animating question for the essay was, how is it the case that for me, like, honestly, for me, as a as a reader of that essay, the best lines of the essay were not written by me. They were written by the, the AI algorithm, GPT-3. And I was trying to square that fact, um, the fact that writing the essay and reading the essay was this moving, meaningful experience with for me, with the fact that, in general, I don't, you know, I, I discourage my students from using AI as a writing tool I generally don't use AI to help me write. I am worried about um, how these technologies in, technologies are infiltrating our society um, on many different um, dimensions. I, my worry exists on many diff different dimensions. I, and I was trying to, like, I was like, how do you, how can both of those things be true? Like, it seems like a contradiction, or it seems at the very least like it's hypocritical of me to have written this essay profited from the existence of this essay and yet be telling other people that I don't think anybody should write using AI. And so I wrote this, I have this essay that's like an exploration of that. Um, and I think I kind of come out the end of, come out the other side of that confusion in the essay. But like one thing that, that was interesting to me when I wrote Ghosts, when I was writing this Wired essay and continues to be interesting to me and like hard to wrap one's mind around is the fact that, like, as a reader of that essay, I think that some of the best lines were written by the AI. It's like, what do you do with that as a writer? Well, I can relate to it. I think that when you're dealing with something that's very emotionally painful and and, and like psychologically and philosophically challenging, uh, that's why, like, my uh, my last book was all about that. Part of the reason it took so long is that it was about loss and like struggling with like my son's disabilities and all this stuff. And it's just these certain things happen to you in life. And it's like, you just take a big punch, right? And you're just kind of like blank. Like, what do I say about this? Like, how do yeah. I possibly, where do I start? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, it's, I found myself kind of frozen with it. And so I relate to this idea or this notion that you had were like, okay, let me see what the AI can do. I never did that. I'm sort of jealous in a way. I'm like, that's brilliant. Mm. But I mean, that it, it, makes, it makes sense to me that for certain, certain things that are really, really challenging to language, that you might use AI to kind of midwife it, you yeah. know, to kind of help you, like, like, like 
just get some words out and then you can maybe mess around with it and make it your own or whatever. But it's just a really interesting use of the technology and a really inventive essay. I think it's brilliant. People should read it. Uh, before I let you go, I kind of want to bring this full circle to the new collection and to this issue of grief, which kind of pervades the collection. And there's a line that I believe one of the critics who reviewed it wrote, I I always write these things down and I don't attribute them. So forgive me, whoever wrote this. (laughs) I liked it and I'm going to read it aloud now. But uh, the line reads, facing the unthinkable helps these characters loosen themselves from expectations about how their feelings should manifest and why. And I thought that was a really illuminating insight into the collection and into a lot of the characters in the collection who are reeling from something or dealing with some sort of relational and emotional difficulty. And in particular with the issue of grief, I want to ask you about this because this has kind of been my experience is that in a weird way, when the quote unquote worst happens, it can be freeing. And it's not something that often gets articulated, but I think it's a very common human experience. There is that element to it in a strange way. It's like this liberation almost. I guess you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. It's like happened. And then also, I think like a lot of the conventions of culture and society just seem like, it's like, whatever. You're just, yeah. they fall away. The bullshit just sort of falls away, at least for a time. I think the veil slowly rises again. <laughs> I don't know how permanent it is, you know, these insights that we have, but I do relate to that, you know, and I think it's like this like half joke that I, will tell about like some of the best moments in my life have happened at funerals. Hmm. And it's for that reason where I just feel like human beings are most human then. And I feel like a lot of the static and fog is just like gone in those moments. And it's like, it actually feels quite nice. Like the sense of artifice maybe drops away. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you stated it beautifully. I don't know. I don't know what more I can say about that. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, I just, I guess like just was it explicit in the creation of these stories to kind of look at characters who might be in that space where they are kind of knocked sideways, but also because of being like destabilized in that way, they might be in a moment or in a time in their lives where they are at liberty to a degree that they normally are not. That's an interesting place to find a person in. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's interesting. Like I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think, I think that's an apt description of it. I mean, I think the very like, creative writing workshop workshoppy voice in me would say something like like there's most to the extent that any piece of literature whether it's you know a short story or a novel or an essay or whatever like is interested in showing change right like showing something that happens to some someone and how that changes them like i think those are moments in which change is sort of inevitable because it's like you have to go you have to go somewhere from here you know where are you gonna go which i think is maybe just a different articulation of what you're saying right like freedom that 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 using that language that term freedom to describe that space is um i think what part of what you're referring to is like the freedom to change right like the opportunity to go somewhere else from here yeah well said uh, I have really enjoyed meeting you. Me too. What a good conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Congratulations on the new collection. I always ask people before I let them go, 
if they've got anything else going, it's fine if you do not. But are you working on a follow-up novel to The Immortal King Rao? Do you have another story collection going? I'm actually working on, since we talked about it, I'm working on a collection of essays that includes ghosts uh, and also includes this Wired piece that I told you about. And Pantheon is publishing it in 2025. Oh, look, that's a very complete answer. There's a lot of certainty. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Usually people are like, well, I'm sort of in the middle of the first draft, and but this feels like it's happening. And you have- Yeah, no, I have a real book with a real deadline. I mean, not that the books with uncertainty aren't real books either, but. All right. Well, we will look forward to it. Vahini, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, there we go. That was Vahini Vara. Her new story collection is called This is Salvaged, available now from W.W. Norton & Company, wherever books are sold. You can find Vauhini on the internet at vauhinivara.com. You can also follow her on Twitter. One more time, the book is called This is Salvaged. It is excellent. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you want to get my newsletter, go sign up. It's free at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you want to join the Other People Patreon community, you can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. You can also write a review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. If you want to get another people t-shirt, just go to otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my novel, it's out there. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share an outtake from a past episode of Yore. And then on Sunday, my guest will be C. Pam Zhang. She has a new novel out called Land of Milk and Honey, available from Riverhead. I had a great talk with her, and that will be happening in just a few days. So... Stay tuned.